Hey ladies, we just want you to be aware that this episode contains discussion about gender and sexuality that may not be appropriate for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. And now, our conversation with Dr. Scott Stigemeyer. So, sorry, my chair is squeaking. (laughs) (laughs) Use your audio magic later to... Yeah, that's all right. So much magic. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Listening to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Erin. And I'm Rachel. Today is a kitchen table talk episode. And if you aren't quite familiar with these yet, normally this is the episode when Sean Denzer comes awkwardly knocking on the studio door and we pretend that we didn't know he was coming when we actually totally yes. knew he was coming. Exactly. I love that. <laughs> Today is a little bit different because our resident pastor happens to be in California, so he can't really knock on our studio door. We are spanning the coasts today, ladies. Yes. This is pretty impressive. And also, this is a very specific topic that we're talking about today, one that we wanted to have a real content expert on mm-hmm. so that we can talk about it faithfully and really get into a bit of the weeds. So today we're talking about transgenderism. This is something that has really come up in our culture a lot lately. A lot of people have started asking questions in the ladies' lounge about topics surrounding transgenderism, and we figured we might as well cover this topic. We will throw some extra resources in the show notes. We'll cover those a little bit later in the podcast. I do want to say there is another episode from the Friends for Life podcast. Their whole season, season two, is available now. It is all about gender and sexual identity. And that is out now. One of those episodes is on transgenderism. So that's another companion podcast to ours. We're going to cover this from two very different standpoints. So if you want a point of view from Dr. Bev Yonke, you can go listen to that one as well. Today, we are joined by the Reverend Dr. Scott Stigemeyer, who is Associate Professor of Theology and Bioethics at Concordia University in Irvine, California, and also my former pastor when I lived in Chicago. So thanks for joining us today. Thanks for the invite. I'm really delighted to, to see you guys and be here. Yeah, I'm really glad that you were able to join us for this episode. So. I just realized because I'm I'm the one who actually knows Scott the least. Oh yeah. Why are you our expert? Ah, that's a really <laughs> good question. <laughs> Let's hear you know, that before we start talking. <laughs> you know, I, I, I kind of cringed a little bit inside when Sarah said the word expert. Yes. <laughs> I take it back. You're not an expert. Just kidding. <laughs> So this is a very multidimensional issue, right? So it sounds like you had or someone had Dr. Yonke on. So there's a medical approach to this. There's a psychiatric approach to this. There's Mm -hmm. uh, probably sociology and various things. So what I do is sort of a pastoral theological approach, which is all intertwined with all those other approaches from a Christian perspective. As an expert, I mean, I I, I don't have a lot of personal direct pastoral experience, but I have some. And I have some other friendship type experiences, but probably not a lot more than many listeners. I've just simply been thinking about this and writing about this and reading about this broadly for a long time, even before anybody had heard of Caitlyn Jenner. And, and that really is kind of the moment, it feels to me, that in our culture, that it's, it suddenly became on everybody's radar and all the media and all the talk shows. 
everybody's known about transgender or sometimes people would, you know, maybe transsexual. That was another term that people used. So it's always kind of been there in, in people's minds to some extent. But I think when Caitlyn Jenner, when Bruce Jenner identified as Caitlyn Jenner, that's because of who he is, right? His background is an Olympic gold medalist. I remember growing up and in the 70s and 80s, and he was always on these like the Wheaties cereal box cover mm -hmm. as this great example of the all-American male. And when he started to talk about being transgender and adopted a female name, everybody, at least of my generation, was kind of like, wow, what could this mean if he himself, that guy, mm -hmm. would, would say this? And so, but even before that, so I, just theologically and Aaron, also because I study bioethics, that's my area ah, of expertise. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's that's my specialization academically, and it's what I teach here mostly. That's I I mean I I respect your credentials as a pastor and a theologian, but honestly, you are probably the only person I can list by name who is studying bioethics. You know, in the Senate, I'm sure there are others out there, but there aren't a lot of you. Bioethics is kind of a, a niche field, but it's one that is really crucial to this subject because so many of the facets of the conversation have in some way to do with that intersection of biology and ethics. I, so I'm really glad right. you're here talking to us. <laughs> well, I hope you'll still say that in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Aaron, are you satisfied? Yes, that is that helpful. Our friend Thank Scott you. counts as an expert because yes. I'm convinced. Yes. <laughs> That is a good clarification and a good boundary that this is not an all-encompassing conversation about mm -hmm. transgenderism. This has many layers, many facets, a lot of different intersections in life and theology and ethics and identity, etc. So obviously we aren't going to cover everything. We are going to cover some pretty basic questions, but also a lot of questions that I shouldn't say a lot. Some of the questions that the ladies in the ladies lounge have also brought up to us that were part of the impetus for us even doing this in the first place. So we are going to come at this from a more theological perspective because our content expert is a theologian. Bev Yankee does cover more of the mental health medical perspective. And so these are two different perspectives that we'll be covering. So I think before we dive into anything, we should define some terms, starting with gender. What is gender? What does it mean biblically, how do we approach it? And then maybe on the flip side, does society define it in a way that is different than we define it in the church? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't that long ago when, when people generally thought of sex and gender as synonyms, mm -hmm. uh, unless you're thinking of like studying Spanish or something, you know, in languages, there's gender, there's male and masculine or male and female nouns or whatever. But as far as humanity goes, sex and gender in most people's minds was basically the same thing. And I think that's was accurate for a time. But then you have this uh, Canadian doctor, well, a doctor that worked at uh, Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Dr. John Money. And he started to use these terms as distinct terms. And sex then became identified as your biology, your chromosomes, your reproductive system, those things were what what your sex was. And he began to talk about gender as more of something that had to do with your psyche, your internal sense of yourself as male or female. It could refer to feelings or experiences or just simply self-identification as male, female, man, woman. And then there's also something that like gender expression. 
And gender expression has to do with how you externally express what your psyche says that you are. So your hairstyle or makeup or manner of mannerisms or or fashion, things like that, those fit under gender expression. And so sometimes people may still see themselves as as male or men, but but they kind of for some reason express themselves in stereotypically feminine or female ways. And this is where you start to get this concept that there's a spectrum and that maybe you're not fully male or female. Sometimes people say non-binary. And for one of a better, for one of a better term, there's a term that I'm going to use that's typically been seen as pejorative, but now in that community isn't, is the word queer. And so queer just simply meant or means that you don't quite fit into the, you know, solidly in one side and the binary or the other side. And so you kind of, maybe one day you sort of see yourself more as a man and another day more as a female. So you might use the word queer to kind of try and blur this hard division into two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's sort of basic definitions. And when I first started talking about this around 2015 or 2016, I had to spend a lot of time defining these. Now, as a Christian, I, I'm personally, I'm okay with something like gender expression. Okay, because I get what that means. I tend not to want to emphasize that there's a big difference between actual gender and sex, because that's the more traditional view that we would just kind of identify your psyche with your biology. I think that's mm-hmm. kind of where the Bible would come in. But when I'm talking to a broader audience, just so that we can be understood, then I may concede to this differentiation of definition, just so that when I say gender, they others may hear exactly what what, what I'm referring to, maybe. So sometimes I may use those terms differently, but but when, in sort of a Christian context or traditional context, I don't want to concede that your psyche and your biology can be at variance, if that makes sense. Do you think, and this is sort of um, a, a tangent of this conversation. I've wondered how much this conversation has been either furthered or hindered by the fact that there is a social taboo around the word sex. Mm. That if we talk about someone's biological sex, we don't want to say the word. I trip over it even now, here and now. And so, (laughs) you know, we've been more inclined as a society and especially as a church to try to avoid that word whenever we can and use the word gender almost euphemistically, but that that has contributed to a dichotomy that doesn't necessarily exist. Is that a fair, well, I won't say a judgment, but a fair suspicion that there may be something in that feeding the fire? You know, you might be onto something if I'm understanding what you're saying, because I think there is, you know, we're not like prudes or something, but, uh, you know, especially sort of within a conservative Christian we don't talk about sex publicly a lot because then we automatically refer that to the, or we, we automatically in our minds associate that with the marriage act, right? <laughs> the reproductive action between a man and a woman, that that's sex. And of course that is. But so in conversation, I may, when I use the word sex in this context, I may not be referring at all to that intimate action that occurs between a man and a woman in, in marriage bed. So I think because Christians maybe are a little bit shy sometimes about acknowledging and, you know, that there is something that happens between a man and a woman in, in the marriage bed. So I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to say this prudishness or just kind of a conservative feeling in, in Christianity. My view is that we should work to overcome that a little bit and yeah. talk about sex, even, you know, the act of sex in appropriate ways within the church. 
and, and age appropriate, right? I, I don't think we should, because what that does, if we don't talk about it, and even if we don't use the word very much, it makes it taboo or kind of like underground or, and, and then your kids and our kids especially are going to be hearing all that anyway. They're going to hear this terminology, but used in not the most wholesome sense. So yeah. if we don't talk about it in appropriate ways as parents and as leaders in the church, then it's not like the topic isn't being discussed within their hearing. So yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if Rachel, if that's what you were kind of saying, but I yeah, do. Yeah, no, I think I think we're on the on the same page there. That I, I realize as we're talking, defining our terms, and I have no trouble whatsoever saying the word gender on the radio, right. but I really struggle to say the word sex on the radio. That this is we are coming at this conversation with one hand tied behind our back that we aren't able to use the terminology in accurate ways and without tripping over our own feet, that it really hinders our ability to speak clearly and intelligently on the subject. Mm-hmm. And then there's and also the I struggle t- with. No, I, I mean, so about a week ago or two weeks ago, I gave a talk here, informal talk on campus at Concordia. They do one of the dorm quads does something like a taco Tuesday every court or every couple of months. That's amazing. I know. It's a great Taco Tuesday night. Taco Tuesday? Yeah. In a, in a dorm <laughs> quad. And and they always have like a like a guest speaker on some topic and a, like a dinner time conversation sort of thing with 50 or 60 friend, college students and a few faculty. And a couple of weeks ago, I did it. And the topic I was asked to speak on was on human dignity and sex trafficking. Ooh. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I mean, I had to look up statistics about sex trafficking. I would know what it means, but... But my approach to that as a as a bioethicist, as a Christian and professor here, was of course to talk about that. But I also wanted to talk about why does this exist, right? Is this supply and demand? And when people are trafficked and things like pornography exists, of course, because of the fallen human nature and how lust or desire that is has been distorted by sin. And so to address that Christianly, I've spent a fair amount of time talking about what it means, you know, what sex means and within the holy confines of marriage, what sex means and marriage means from a biblical Christian perspective as a way to provide foundation for for what's going on behind sex trafficking, the the desire to find fulfillment outside the God-given parameters is a big part of what drives that crime. So if we can become more comfortable within the church talking about what marriage is and and how sex is part of that, one illustration I always use is, you know, sex is beautiful, right? Sex is something given by God, you know, and, but I always say we should not be ashamed to talk about what God was not ashamed to create. Mm. And so, mm-hmm. so it, you know, so I think we should be discussing it and we should talk about what sexual fulfillment actually means and not kind of go along with this suspicion that it might be a little bit shameful mm-hmm. or, you know, that we can talk about it beautifully. And another illustration I sometimes use is sex is like fire, you know, in the fireplace, it's beautiful and warming and you want, you know, it's desirable. But in the curtains, it's a disaster and destructive and, you know. <laughs> so, That's so a within, great illustration. Yeah, use that uh, uh, freely if you want. Yes. <laughs> but you know, that is to say that within that God creates this, he gives Adam and Eve to each other and they literally are made for each other. The, your reproductive system is the one part of your biology that doesn't do anything by yourself, right? You don't need a partner to make your circulatory system work right or your nervous system or anything like that. But you are lit- we are literally designed and made for each other, man and woman, 
So it's a beautiful thing and it's a good thing, but as God desires it, you know, for our benefit, and that includes, you know, that, that means marriage. So in its right place, it's a very good thing. It's, it's productive and beautiful, but outside of that confine, it, it causes a lot of harm. And when you speak of it that way, then it can almost be more gospel centered, right? This is when we say sex within marriage and, and to restrict that, then it doesn't, yes, it's law, but it's also for our benefit. It's good. It's good for you to, to maintain that. And that's God protecting you in, in, with his law. Mm-hmm. So there's all sorts of ways to go at that. How did the students take your talk? Did they enjoy it or were they sitting there rather uncomfortably the whole time? <laughs> well, you have to understand college students today may not have necessarily that same level of shyness about oh, some of these yeah, topics. <laughs> yeah. But, but, you know, okay, so we're at a Concordia. I teach at a Concordia. And, and for listeners who may not know, our Concordia colleges or universities do not require that our students have a faith statement. You know, mm-hmm. some, some Christian schools do, like in our neighborhood, Biola, right? To be a student there, you have to sign some kind of a confession of faith and describe how you became a Christian. Now, our faculty have to do something like that, and our staff have to have some kind of a, you know, we have to you know, have that. But our students don't. And so we have students who are confessional Lutherans. We have students who are uh, traditional Roman Catholics. A lot of our students, probably most of our students, would I say they're Christian of varying degrees of seriousness about it. But we have atheist students, agnostic students. I had a student a couple semesters ago who was a Scientologist, Muslim students, you name it, Jewish, Buddhist, all of it. And so sometimes when I talk about stuff like this or someone does, yeah, you, I might get pushback. I might get challenges. In my experience, it's always been positive and productive and, and respectful. So I didn't know, actually, going in front of these students, I wasn't sure how this was going to go over. But it was, if anybody didn't dislike what I was saying, no one said anything about it. So, mm-hmm. so stu- the question, the Q&A that was occurring, and there were about a dozen faculty there too. And so the Q&A that was going, I thought was very, it was like a family dinner, like this, you know, it, but with 50 kids. <laughs> <laughs> and and then afterward, I I couldn't leave. I, mean, I was there for a long time after the event ended because students and faculty were wanting to talk about various things. And that's why we do this, right? This is why we do this. It's not in the classroom, but it is complementary to our formation of godly citizens and, and people that will serve in, in church in the world. And so the reaction it was was pretty good, but you know, it could have not been, right? There could have been right. They could, it could have been, there might've been some disagreement. And I'm sure there were students who maybe have different views about when and what kind of sex, but, but I didn't, I mean, nobody was, you know, arguing or fighting with me about it. Well, good for them. Yeah. That's generally my experience here. And I think, you know, this is probably true of most Concordias, I can't say, but my experience is that like, even in the classroom, if I have Muslim students, I'm teaching the Christian doctrine or, you know, they'll ask questions, students who don't share the Christian faith or the Lutheran perspective on Christianity, students will ask questions and sometimes pointed questions and they will sometimes challenge. But I think there's a way that at least 99% of the time you can navigate that without completely making enemies of everybody. Mm -hmm. But there are students that withdraw. I mean, we do have students that, and all Concordia, sure, all right, who, who leave, right? They leave after a semester or after a year. And when we do exit interviews, uh, a lot of times students will say the reason they left is because of the they're, they're not in in line or you know share that vibe of the of the religion so I, all that is just to say that yeah sometimes students don't you know agree with what we say or believe as a as a lutheran school but generally it's fairly positive yeah 
sounds like you were able to cast for them a very beautiful picture of the Bible's teaching on sexuality within marriage. Can you expand on that for us, you know, related directly to this topic? What does the Bible teach us, not just about sexuality, but about our sex and gender and our identity? Yeah, thanks for that question, because you use the word beauty and beautiful. And I think that's a really good way for us to approach this, because sex and our our gender, if you want, the, the male-female binary within human humanity is beautiful. It's good, it's true, and it's beautiful. It's inspiring, right? It should be marvelous. We should marvel at how God has created us to be and that it can be, and, you know, and that, you know, generally it's fruitful, you know, love always is fruitful and it's about self-giving, right? And, and, and so sex and marriage is actually images in a way, God himself, right? I mean, the father gives himself to the son, the son gives himself to the father, the spirit proceeds from both, that there is sort of a mirror there of, you know, because it, you know, Genesis one twenty six, God created them in his Im- man in his image, male and female. Okay, so it's particularly I think the male female bond and relationship that is part of what it means to image or mirror God. So that's a beautiful message. Then it's not just law and commandments, restrictiveness and oppression of your humanity. It's actually beautiful, and that is when if it, the better we get at talking about it that way. It's a new way for people to hear it. People who are not Christians, they do not expect us necessarily to talk about this as, you know, the traditional Christian morality, biblical teaching on this sort of thing is good and it's, it's beautiful instead of like, we're just kind of fire and brimstone-y. Yeah. Real, Repressive you know, is the word yeah, that yeah. I think they'd be more likely to use. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oppressive, repressive, because they see that sex is natural and that's true right? It is part of nature. That is human nature. It's been, you know, we're fallen. Our nature is corrupted, but it is natural and isn't therefore not shameful in itself. And so if we give off the impression that it's, we're just tolerating the fact that this is part of human life, we're then misrepresenting the scripture. And, and it is rightly, I I mean, at least understandably a turnoff to, to people. But so one one resource I was going to mention at some point is an is a relatively new book by Dr. John Kleinig, and you may be you may I don't know you guys may be very familiar with this book. You know, wonderfully made. Have you yep. done like a series on it? By the way, you're responding. We did an entire book club <laughs> devoted to wonderfully made. So yeah, it is yeah, one. it's a great book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so great minds think alike, right? <laughs> yes, and, and so I think do ours, so. right? Yeah. So. <laughs> Uh, well, that's the, so I use that as an example because he actually says right at the be- toward the beginning of the book that when we talk about these moral issues that have to do with the body, including sex and sexuality, that if we can, and I don't think we're artificially framing this as positive, you know, in some kind of manipulative way, but if we can just kind of remember and have part of it is I think Christians today, because we see, you know, there's culture wars and we see so much going on that's against nature and against Christianity, I sense, a, I feel like there's a sense of panic within the church, you know, like, cause the world's caving in. Right. So we're panicking and, and that, and people can sense that. Mm-hmm. And that's not beautiful. If we can just kind of realize, Hey, you know, yeah, of course, you know, bad things are happening. And I'm not saying we don't take it seriously. And I'm not t- saying that we don't do anything about it, but you know, we can do it with freedom and joy, right? We could, we do what we do freely and with joyfulness because of the gospel. There are times to call people to repentance, of course, and there are times to 
say things people won't like and to be firm. And, but I think that that sense of panic that I experience and that many of us do, because we see things rapidly changing in bad ways. But if I think if we can overcome that a little bit in ourselves and just remember, you know, God's not on vacation. He's not asleep. He knows exactly what's going on and he's not panicked. So what gives me the right to kind of freak out so much? And so I think people kind of see us on a defensive or I don't know what the best word is. If we can just, when we need to say no, we say no, but let's, you know, focus on how we can emphasize the yesness of, of our bodies and, and, and things like, you know, our sexual natures. And I think that will actually be help us in our mission a bit more. On this topic, one of the questions that I don't I don't know if it came from the group or if it was one that we had just brainstormed, but that I want to talk about just a little more is basically the question as written is, is there a middle ground mm. for boys play with trucks and guns and girls play with dolls? And then there's also the other side of it of everything is okay for every child. Let's not let's not impose their choices on them. I also think about just maybe this starts getting into gender expression as you were talking about it before, but like the whole idea of masculine and feminine mm. versus male and female. I, I feel like those two adjectives, we'll use them as adjectives in this case, they mean different things. I mean, I'm I'm a woman because God made me a woman. I'm that whether I dress in a very feminine way mm -hmm. or I don't. I'm still a woman. So how does all of that fit into the current conversation uh, that's happening with gender and also into, because I, I feel like it does bleed over into some of the the transgender stuff that that we hear about with people who feel like, like I, I don't know, does it, does it cross over? <laughs> I don't know. There's my topic. I'll yeah. let you respond now. <laughs> well, it's a super good thing, right, to talk about. And it's really an important part of this conversation because we have to admit, okay, this is about getting out of that panic mode. When we, when we panic, I think we over respond to certain things, right? You know, mm. we want to correct. So we're on the path and we see people falling into the ditch on one side and we want to correct that and get back on the true path. But sometimes we mm -hmm. overcorrect and fall, you know, fall into the other ditch on the, and so that's where panic does. We over respond sometimes and in some ways. And so there are, we have to just be honest. I mean, there are aspects of, whether you, you know, when you use the term femininity or masculinity that are cultural mm -hmm. and that can change and do change. And we shouldn't sort of be, I think, over policing um, some of those strictly cultural things. Now, that doesn't mean in my mind anything goes right that, that all these things because culture is important. And so, yeah, I, I actually think about this quite a bit and was talking to a group literally just two days ago about this very, very narrow specific topic that you brought up. That if there are, let's say, you know, the stereotype, right? Say there's a boy child that is, he, he doesn't like sports and, you know, maybe he's sensitive or whatever. And that's not a bad thing, right? Maybe he likes other things, pursuits that are more stereotypically feminine. Like maybe he, you know, I, I mean, I'm just using generalizations here, but maybe, maybe ballet or I don't know, whatever, right? I mean, flower arranging or whatever things. So in the past, if you had a, a little girl that didn't want to be a Disney princess, but like to climb trees, right. And, and, and throw rocks that she'd be called a tomboy. And that was generally acceptable. But if a boy in any way sort of didn't fit the, the strict 
feeling about what boys should do and be, then there was no comparable term to tomboy mm-hmm. for him. Well, certainly just not perverted. a neutral term. There were mm-hmm. several pejorative terms. That, mm-hmm. Nobody wants to be a sissy, yeah. for example. Yep. Yeah. 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 It was uh, some kind of a sign of perversion in him that he wasn't truly male, mm-hmm. right? And you see, I actually think that the, if, if we allow that, if we give into that too much, then I think we actually ca- help to cause the thing we're trying to prevent. Mm-hmm. Because you might have a boy who says, well, if that's what a boy is to play football, and right. I don't have any interest in that, maybe I'm not quite a boy, right? And then he meets someone who's in the trans community and they accept him. Because whether he likes football or not, just as who he is. And then he might just get the impression that he belongs there. Mm-hmm. I'm not really a boy or at least not in, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not a girl, but I'm not a boy. And so if we over police these things that are cultural, then I think we can actually be counterproductive. And the same would tr- be true of, of, of young ladies. Maybe, maybe there's a girl that doesn't want to be a boy necessarily, but she doesn't, she's not girly. If you mm-hmm. know. And, and that's okay. We have to be okay with that. And the other thing, though, is that I don't want to say that these things don't matter at all. They do. And we have to use discernment and wisdom to think how that works. So not long ago, a generation or maybe a little more ago, girls didn't wear pants, right? Girls, you went to school, there were school dress codes that girls wore skirts or dresses. And mm-hmm. if a girl wore pants, she could be seen as, to use a current term, gender bending, Mm-hmm. Right. Or rebelling against her God given nature as a as a girl. Mm-hmm. Now, however, if, if a girl goes to school wearing chinos or jeans, I don't think anybody's automatically assuming she's a lesbian. Right. So culture changes on that. And same thing with hair length. Right. I mean, you can have men now who have long hair and it doesn't look like they're, you know, somehow perverts. Uh, but in the 70s, when the hippie thing was really going, I mean, that was a huge criticism against men having long hair. But okay. However, if someone is intentionally trying to titillate by adopting practice or expression, that would be the, if they're intentionally trying to titillate or if they're intentionally trying to pass as the other sex or blur that Mm -hmm. distinction, then yeah, then there can be problems because I think culturally there are always going to be some differences between men and women. Men, men and women are different in, you know, infinitely wonderful ways, but how those things manifest is going to be a little different if I'm in Scotland wearing a kilt or, you know, I mean, Jesus never wore pants. Let's be honest. Right. I mean, you know, okay. Pants are a more recent invention than, right. So we can't, we, that's all I'm saying. And and that's why I say it does take some discernment to know when someone is actually causing offense. You know, cross dressing is a real thing we should not like, right. I mean, cross dressing, but we have to be kind of, I think, careful in terms of how we identify that as fashions change that are actually neutral things. Mm-hmm. So some of it's intention, right? If I'm trying to, you know, for some kind of sexually perverse thing, come across as a woman, as a man, if I'm trying to do that. And that might include wearing a dress or something or not wearing whatever, or wearing makeup or wearing long hair or some, or liking flower arranging or something like that. If I'm trying to be the other Okay, well then, then you're then you're transgressing God's uh, creation. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a very important topic. What you said about, especially for parents, Christian parents, because we don't want to have that panicky over response, while also not having that cultural. There is no such thing as sex, or there's no such mm-hmm. thing. As, you know, this doesn't matter at all. Mm-hmm. It's it's a fine line, and to some extent, we have to give ourselves a little grace towards each other if we make slightly different attitudes about something slightly different things, give a little more grace and leniency or liberty to each other. Also, I think we do 
make you know check our panic and then oh, i had a third thing it'll come to me later but those are some things <laughs> <laughs> well along these same lines i think one of the arguments is that like gender is a social construct mm. we've touched on this a little bit already but more specifically how do we respond when people say that transgenderism yeah. is okay because gender is just something that society has made up the implication being that people made gender and therefore people can unmake gender if it becomes inconvenient yeah mm. yeah that that's where i think from a christian vantage point we want to we want to maintain a sense that sex gender however we're going to use those words refer to something objective right i mean we all have feelings and you may feel something right the psyche that's what i was saying that a lot of times now people will say gender just refers to the psyche that is your internal experience of life or whatever is real but that's somewhat that's largely subjective and so uh, somehow i think we want to make sure we communicate that these realities have objectivity to them and that means the body we should remember that our biology is part of what it means to be a man <laughs> and a woman. And so however you use the word gender, whatever I feel like, I am a man because of my body. And right. and and that and that's different too. One other term that hasn't come up yet, I don't think, is sexuality. Mm. And that is generally understood to mean desire. Mm -hmm. You desire a certain kind of other person. You know, it could be same sex or whatever, sexuality. So all these different terms get moved around. I don't think it's a social construct, right? I, that's why I said traditionally we would sort of combine the terms or overlap the terms gender and sex because that, that, that emphasizes the objectivity as God is a creator. What is a social construct, at least to some extent, is the stuff we were just talking about, right? Stereotypical femininity. There is some mm -hmm. construct, social con construct there. And so I would just press someone to say, well, what is it that you're actually saying? Because we find all these, you know, bullet points or talking points. And uh, so when we're trying to communicate with someone and they start to say things like that, they may actually be saying that the body has really nothing to do with who I am. And we certainly wouldn't be able to go along with that. And that's mm -hmm. a real, if someone actually is going to try and assert that, then, then our conversation is going to be really difficult. But if what they mean by saying gender is, is a construct, if what they really mean is that girly girls and, you know, macho men, okay, well, then I could concede that a little bit. As long as they're really clear. See, that's using the same terms in different ways yeah. has always been a problem in, throughout human history in terms of communication. And so sometimes no matter what words people use, we might have to, you know, interrogate a little farther to see what, because I don't want to argue just about words, right? I mean, if, if let's find out what you're saying and then try to make sure that we're using words as best as possible the same way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So is it a social construct? No. If what you're talking about, what it means to be a man under God's creation biologically, but if we're talking about what hairstyle to use, there might be some construct there. And I, I could concede that. Mm -hmm. I want to circle back around to the question of panic that you have mentioned several times and talk about how the transgender movement that we're facing today compares to mm. things that have come before. I mean, obviously, this isn't the first time Christians have dealt with thorny problems relating to sexual ethics. I remember I, I did not live through the 60s, but I understand free love was a thing. I have lived through Third wave feminism, no fault divorce, teen pregnancy used to be a big deal, the AIDS crisis, unwed parenthood, remember Murphy Brown. Mm -hmm. 
let's see. Oh, yeah. And Obergefell, the legalization of homosexual marriage. And all of those created a sense of panic. But somehow this seemed like a uniquely panicky kind of moment. Am I am I right? <laughs> and are there ways in which this is unique? And why? Why do we feel so much angst, like queasiness about this topic in particular? At least I, I, that's what I'm sensing from, you know, our, our church communities. Mm -hmm. I think I think so. I mean, I think you're right that there is some there's some level of dis difference here. And, you know, maybe there's this is worth a conversation. People might approach this or answer that question a little differently. But here's, here's how I would kind of do it. Part of it is that it just seems like there's been this cascade, you know, like within our within my lifetime or our parents' lifetime, there's been a, a rapid cascade of these kinds of things. You know, first it was, you know, teen pregnancies and things like that. And then you had more and more talk about, you know, homosexuality and abortion is in there. It's just been this waterfall of things. And then this also, we're just getting really overwhelmed with, you know, within a lifetime of what looks to be like the disintegration of any kind of Christendom or, you know, Christian society. So I think, I think people are just, you know, finally getting to that breaking point and to some extent, but I also think in a higher level, the difference is that this just seems more personal in the sense that it has more to do with the human person. All those other things did too. Right. But I think there's a kind of an intuition that same sex marriage or abortion as bad as we would say those are and sinful they didn't really, in the same way, denounce what you are, <laughs> you know, whereas denying your very gender or sex seems to be at a, at a, attacking the human person more directly. And that's just my sense of it. That's kind of how I would answer that. I also think we have to acknowledge when we talk about sin, right? We talk about sin. This is the thing I hear occasionally is that, well, okay. Uh, homosexual practice is is a sin, but we're all sinners, and sin is sin. And in a way, that's true, right? We are all sinners, and in terms of our standing before God, uh, sin is sin, right? I mean, breaking one part of the law is essential to breaking all of it, right? So it's not like you know, in terms of justification, that I've got I can be not as bad as as others. But in but that's not all true, right? I mean, there are distinctions between sin in terms of how they affect us and how they affect society and and that is our neighbor. And so there are some things that are just far more harmful to the fabric of human humanity than other things. All those things that you talked about, Rachel, are are harmful to the to our neighbor. But but somehow this seems to be the transgender affirmation culture seems to attack everybody. And, and part of it's because the law actually does attack, you know, the law is actually trying, starting to put restrictions on what pronouns teachers can use, how medical professionals are supposed to talk. You know, I mean, I've had, I've had, I've had students who tell me who work in are studying some kind of medicine, healthcare profession that in hospitals, you know, they're starting to not refer to pregnant women, but pregnant persons or things like that. And people's jobs can be online for that. So Murphy Brown did what she did, but I might not lose my job <laughs> and my livelihood or go to jail or, or be considered some kind of a danger, right? I mean, that's the thing is that we're not just wrong in the eyes of our other side, if you want, but we're dangerous. And so there's panic on their side too. And, and I think it's because at least in the conversation, we associate suicidality, suicide or things like that are 
you know, great mental illness, self-harm more to our Christian response. So if, you know, you've heard it all, right? I mean, if you, if you have a child that is expressing kind of transgender things and you as a Christian parent don't support that fully, if you don't have unquestioning affirmation of that, that you're going to lead your child to kill themselves. I don't know if we heard that as much about the other things kinds of feminism and, and things like that, that, that your, your child is going to die because you did, didn't affirm that. Right. So there's mm-hmm. some level, this is more personal, ultimately our enemy, right? Uh, Satan is our enemy and he hates God. Okay. He, but he can't, he can't directly attack God. So he attacks the image of God. And, and this goes back to what I was saying. I think there is, you know, every individual image is God in this, you know, this, you don't have to be married, right. To have that. But I think biblically we make the case there is something in our created nature that we are, whether we get married or not, we are designed for that. And not that every Christian has to be, that's not what I mean, but we are, we do have that, you know, innate design for that. And that, that itself, that male, female relationship in some way, and which produces children images God in a special way. And so I think God, that that's my theory. I'm speculating. I don't know the mind of Satan, but I think that he might be going after things like marriage and and sexual identity more and more because those things image God and the creator and the incarnation and the virgin mother, all these kinds of things are particularly targeted. That's sort of my answer to that. It's, it's worth having a larger conversation about how this might be different from some of those other things. Yeah. I would add two things to that also, that transgender movement seems to be affecting children more than adults. And that presents a whole lot of complications because of all the gender therapies. I mean, that that's going through state legislatures, what medical professionals are allowed to do, gender affirming care to a young person and all of the implications that that means for parents and parents in certain states, what they can and can't do. And on the flip side of that, that this gender affirming care can't like if you go through that, a lot of that can't be reversed. Like if someone goes through top surgery, bottom surgery, does all of those things to transition, detransitioning is hard. So there's there's something also to be said that a lot of it is irreversible. So it's damaging on so many levels to your body if you do that. And if you do that when you're a child, like there's just there's so many layers to how harmful it can be on children. And I think that's just that is a huge issue. Yeah. I you know, so in Genesis 3, when, when God addresses Adam and Eve post-fall, and he addresses the serpent, and he tells the serpent and Eve, right, that, that, the, that the seed of the woman would, would destroy the head or crush the head of the, of the serpent. So again, here's me trying to get into the mind of the enemy. So I think that's why he has a particular hatred towards women in pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And the act of abortion is part of the satanic attack on women in pregnancy and family, large, more generally. Hmm. But a woman has an abortion, you know, she could have another child, right? Most likely. But you have a sterilizing surgery that that's gone, right? And so right. if if the devil has a particularly hatred, particular hatred towards fertility, <laughs> human fertility in babies and reproduction, this is a if I'm the enemy, that's a great strategy is to to get people to sterilize themselves permanently. Yeah. There's a really good book, and maybe this is a good book you know, called Irreversible Damage, right? You, you, you know that word, that book? It's by Abigail Schreier. I've heard of it, but I've not read it. Okay, good. Then I I'm glad read I can. It. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad I can introduce that to you a little more. 
It's called Irreversible Damage. I think the subtitle is something, What the Transgender Craze is Doing to Girls. Hmm. And and she really talks about this, Sarah, what you were saying about how this is affecting kids. Mm-hmm. And what I want to say about the author first is that she's not a Christian and she's not a conservative. And she has no particular problem as an author. She has no particular problem with adults being transgender. But she's very disturbed about what this is doing to children. And her book is particularly mostly about girls mm-hmm. and, and, you know, preteen and, and pubescent girls and how this transgender craze is just exploding exponentially amongst that population. And, and so she does a lot of she brings in a lot of data, does a lot of research about what kind of harms this does and the messages that are sent to young girls. I mean, how does it, you know, I mean, how does an eight-year-old girl know she's a boy when she's, you know, she's, she's never gone through puberty. She's, you know, probably never, um, you know, had all those physical changes that go with that. Never gone to prom, probably never kissed a boy, any kind of romantic, what does she know? You know? And so, so Abigail Schreier is a really good resource that you and your reader or your listeners should, should note, but just understand the caveat that she's not going to be a hundred percent what we think. Mm on transgender in general, but the information and the research she's done and her general approach to this, as far as kids go, is very helpful. In a way, it actually helps us even more that she's not in our camp uh, as, yeah. as conservative Christians, because it gives a little more credibility to, to the people out there in the world, you know, that it's not just sort of reactionary, you know, fundamentalists who are recognizing some harm here. It's mm-hmm. also atheists. Mm-hmm. who are being just looking at data, right. And research and finding out and, you know, and also having kind of an intuitive understanding that this is, you know, the natural law, right. That this, this isn't great. Well, and I mean, I, if all, all the things that were going on in our society were happening among panda bears or, you know, America's dairy cattle, we would be very concerned <laughs> because right, I mean, if you study animals, you know, that that's not, not good. No, no, it, it's not natural, right? And you know, if we're looking at like endangered species that we want to not become destroyed and dis- extinct, I, mean, I don't know panda bears, but something like that, right? Yeah, we should be very concerned about their fertility, and I actually kind of agree with that. I don't think God, I don't think it's great that species God made, you know, are disappearing, you know. But I don't want to overstate that. But yeah, so so we would kind of, I think many people would kind of see, well, that's a problem for panda bears not to have a good reproductive life as a species, right? It's not good for them as a, as a species, but yet for human, yet it's actually the opposite for many people that, you know, they would see human beings as kind of a virus on the earth or something. And, and that we should reduce a human population for the good of the rest of the species. Again, it's all this kind of perversion against the particular uniqueness of human beings as imaging God. Mm-hmm. And before y'all come at me, I do know that pandas are not bears. oh believe me i think i invented the um actually (laughs) bringing us back so talking about kids and gender how can there's two sides to this how do we talk to kids young kids about gender and sexuality in a way that makes sense to them in a way that affirms god's design for humanity and how do we support parents in their parenting in this age when kids, according to society, kids can choose their gender? How do we do that on both sides of that coin? Well, 
<laughs> if, if we knew exactly, we would, wouldn't have as many problems. But well, so here's here's here, here's here's some of my, <laughs> I'll, I'll try. Right, I'll try to give you some some answer. First of all, I don't think we should be talking too young. I mean, I'm not saying that we should take kindergartners and be giving them the birds and the bees and all the kinds of things that, you know, that, so when I say that we should feel more comfortable in the church, talking about sex is a beautiful thing in God's creation. I, I try to emphasize the word appropriate. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm not suggesting that parents give, you know, a lot of, you know, even scientific information or to small kids. I think we got to allow that to that innocence. Right. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. However, I do think we can overreact to that. I think we can overdo this, not wanting to talk to kids part. And I think we have to, I mean, I don't want them to get their sex education from television or their peers. I, you know, I want to be how they hear about this stuff. And I don't want people to, I don't want them to not know what this stuff means. <laughs> So somehow, right, I think this falls on parents and, and church leaders to kind of navigate and strategize and talk to each other about ways that we can do this. We also, I think, as parents have to be very serious about what we can do to limit our children's exposure to what the world is saying and doing. And you can't raise your child in their closet. But, you know, maybe the public schools, maybe we should, parents should really reconsider how they're going to have their children educated. We got great Lutheran schools. Homeschooling is also an option that people, a lot of people are are embracing and, and for good reasons. Homeschool mom and, over here. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. I, and I, and I want to support that. I affirm that. I think that's an absolutely great thing and should probably, you know, obviously not every single family has the same resources to do the same kinds of answers to these things. But I think we have Lutheran schools. There are many good Christian schools and probably even some other private schools that are more, I don't know, traditional. I will just, that, those are all money options. And not, so for the for the single mom who's working, mm-hmm. it's not an option to homeschool and maybe not an option to pay tuition. Lutheran schools, excellent. Most are not especially affordable. <laughs> so... Yeah. What are the options, especially then, like, how do you engage if your child is in public school? What are the ways to still appropriately talk and counter or what about those situations? A number of things. You know, we as parents, we can try to limit what exposure kids have to media and Internet acknowledging though and let's not mm-hmm. let's not put our heads in the sand and pretend that you know I mean, there's a way there's always a workaround you know you can say you can't be on social media you know you're 13 but there's workarounds on that for kids and they know all about it yeah mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean we don't have any kind of restrictions or limits i think parents need to take that more seriously and not give their you know at least not be giving their children access to media that's harmful as best we can and i think we should take that seriously but also about the access issue for lutheran education it is my view, and I have said this publicly and in many settings, that we as the Lutheran Church Missouri Standard with our schools, we absolutely have to put at a much higher priority than we do, mm. making those schools affordable for every mm. single person that's qualified wants to be there. And mm. and it's never, you know, I, I, I will resist when someone says it's, it's too expensive. No, it's not. We have, we have all kinds of, we have enough money. We're just spending it on something mm. else. You know, don't buy another car, right? Give this to your Lutheran school. Don't go on a vacation. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to tell people exactly how this should work out, but we have as a, as church body, we have the money 
to fund these schools, mm. at least to a much greater extent than we do. Yeah. And, and you know, now a specific congregation might not, right? A small congregation may not themselves, but you know, the neighboring church might, you know, the larger mm. suburban church. You know, I'm not an economist, I'm not a financial advisor, but it is my view as a pastor and one who thinks about these issues that that the 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 provision of Lutheran education, Christian education is an extremely high priority and we need to put it even higher in our priority. And we need to teach mm. people to to not spend money on other things. You know, don't go out to eat for a year. Yeah, I know that that's not what you want, but it, you need to do that and, and then give yeah. whatever. We just need to prioritize it much higher so that these schools are accessible to more kids. Mm-hmm. Well, and maybe that's a point of the panic. You know, I look at my own family yeah. and how, you know, when we had our kids in Lutheran school, that was the second biggest check after the mortgage every month. It was a lot. You're right, Aaron. Very expensive. But homeschooling is also expensive because I am not working outside the home. So I can, so mm-hmm. like that's an even more expensive thing. If you think about what I could be bringing in working full time. And it also limits my husband's ministry opportunities mm-hmm. to those who can afford to support a family without a wife working outside the home. So, you know, there are these economic considerations. And there are cases in which you absolutely can't make it work. There are cases where that single mom, you know, the thought of coming home after a long day and then doing four or five hours of homeschool because there's no Lutheran schools in the area, like that that's not even a possibility. But I think you're, and I hate to say it, it sounds so alarmist, but I think you're probably right that this education thing is something we need to definitely think through all our options very carefully and not assume that just because there's a free one that it's going to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and I'm not oh. pointing fingers. I mean, I'm just as guilty as worldliness and selfishness. And I mean, I'm not trying to put myself up as some kind of paragon when I say this, but I, it is my belief that we need to be talking about as pastors and others and leaders and family members of churches that, hey, you know, let's all commit not to put on that extension to our house and let's just make this school go. And we have neighborhood kids that don't want their parents, don't want them in public schools, but they can't afford what we're doing. And so then why are we, you know, if we can't make this gospel ministry, this life-saving ministry available to our neighbors, you know, I think we should really second guess ourselves then. That is not where I thought this conversation would end up going. I've got to say, <laughs> surprise, surprise. This was not on our list of topics to cover, but that doesn't mean it's not important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Wow. Well, it's part of the strategy, right? I mean, we it's, an, it's one thing to just discuss the problem and analyze to death, right? But we have to have a strategy, a tactics, a plan for how we can address this without the overreaction and panic mode that I was talking about. But when I say don't panic, that doesn't mean I'm saying relax, right? I mean, I I think we should be realists about everything, but I don't think we should be pessimists. I think we can actually with the help of God. And if we die, I mean, (laughs) I mean, if the culture really burns us up, you know, burns us to the stake, then what of it, right? I mean, God, God's God is Lord, right? And I don't mean to be glib, but I think we have to develop this piety of martyrdom and it will help us. It will help us give financially more, frankly. (laughs) So what is your real assessment of our situation right now? (laughs) What is my, Uh well, I don't know. I mean, who knows, right? I mean, (laughs) I don't know the future. I I know. I mean, the bioethicist says don't panic and also be ready to burn at the stake. That's a, (laughs) well, (laughs) but I, 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 I was just speaking to our LCMS Council of Presidents two days ago about some of these oh, issues. Oh, right. Yeah. They were here on our campus. 
Mm-hmm. And they asked me to speak on some of this and I was doing that. And at the end, and I said a lot of the same things I've just said to you. And, and at the end of it, I read them, maybe I can even find it, but at, at the end of my talk, I read to them an excerpt. There's a, there was a Christian martyr in the year 202 in Carthage, North Africa. It was a woman, young woman, young mother, and her early, probably her early twenties named Perpetua. Yeah. And so she was arrested. She's a fairly new Christian. She was arrested. She had a baby and her pagan parents were saying, just denounce Christ, right? Denounce Christ. Think of your child, right? Think of the family that depends on you. And she said something like, well, father, you, you, you see that picture in the corner, that picture is going to be a picture. No matter what you say, I'm a Christian, right? And so I'm not going to say I'm not, but, but the part I read to them, and this is from the ancient account that. It says Perpetua, and you know, there's maybe a little embellishment, but I think there's general truth in it that Perpetua walked into the amphitheater with calm, it specifically said she was calm and a glowing countenance. And it said she was, if she, if she was trembling, it was with joy, not fear. And, and it says the reason is because she knew she was the beloved of God and that's how it ends. Right. And, I, and so it's like, look, we, like I said, we may be, we may face even greater persecution and, and we should, we should be practical and do things that we can as citizens to try to not have that. We shouldn't be too passive, but if we are called on to die for Christ, I hope we can do it as Perpetua did and, 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 and be calm and have beaming countenance because we know we are the beloved of God. So that's my final word. I mean, to them, that was my final word after I talked about all these things. Don't panic. Be serious. Be realistic. Don't be pessimists. God can do, God can change minds using us. He can change minds. He does sometimes. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it'll work, but but sometimes he, he you know that has. And a lot of people, the early church account, early church reports tell us that people like Perpetua pagans in the stands watch some of these martyrs go to their faith go to their death with such calm and even joy that it caused a mat it caused great numbers to convert to christianity because they didn't know anything in their life that gave them that kind of calm in the face of death and so they you know so there's a church father that said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church so that's what i mean don't be pessimistic even if we are called to burn at the stake what of it god will use that because I know I, I know what kind of God we have. I know he will use that. He's not panicked about it. Now, I'm not saying I have I can embody that sort of calm myself. I'd get nervous. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I pray I, I pray I could walk in the fashion. I could live in the fashion of Perpetua. Yeah, I think there's there's a difference between yelling or yelling, running around yelling that the sky is falling and working in our vocations as sister, daughter, mother, wife, employee, etc., and living faithfully how we're supposed to and encouraging each other in love, encouraging each other in the gospel and showing that witness as we live our daily lives. We don't necessarily need to be screaming at the world mm-hmm. unless it's appropriate in your vocation. <laughs> Maybe that's a thing you do. Yeah. But Along those lines, how do we then show that witness and show what we believe and live out what we confess about gender and sexuality as that witness to the world without being necessarily panicky about it? 
Yeah, I think we have to pray for help <laughs> because, yeah. I, you know, this is why I, I say, you know, let's walk on the path, right? Because someone might hear what I've been saying about not panicking. Someone that we know or love, right, might be hearing me say that and think that, well, but actually too many people in the pews are complacent and we actually need to raise our volume a little bit and become a little more intense to wake people up. And I'm totally with you. I think we probably do, but in ways that will be helpful, right? And so that's why I say we got to pray about it. You know, we absolutely need God to help us and he promises to do so. And I know he will do so. I'm confident. And so there is a time. It is right. If we have complacency in the church, and I don't, I'm not advocating lukewarmness in the name of trust. I, I, I'm saying, no, we, you know, we should probably use a little more intensity in here and there where necessary to get people motivated. But I think I hope we can do that in a way without acting like it all depends on how you know, how we respond. God will use you in your vocation, but part of your vocation is to be a citizen. And in the United States, that includes voting. That includes, you know, getting out and even campaigning and you know, donating money to candidates. You know, I mean, if we were citizens in, in Rome, that would mean something else, right? Or the Roman Empire, it meant something else. But in our, the, the style of government that God has given us gives citizens more power over how things are done. And so I'm not an isolationist. I don't think we should be the kind of Christians like the Amish, right? That we just kind of turn into our own little uh, silos. But at the same time, right? I mean, the the world isn't won for the kingdom by elections either. I know we're we're running low on time, but there's something I really want to circle back around to that you said earlier that really hit me. It's the you know in your scenario earlier about the boy who liked flower arranging. You were talking about how if he is welcomed into a transgender community, that he is more likely to fall prey to that lie. And the question is, what role do communities play in this struggle on both sides? I think a tremendous role because we are not created. I mean, we are created for relationship. And that includes, you know, I've been talking about marriage, right? You're designed for another but that also includes a family, right? I mean, a family, a church, a, a community, however that specifically comes about. And mm -hmm. so I think that is what it means to be a human, right? Is to live in community. I think it's, I think it's necessary mostly, right? I mean, there are people that probably are better off or, or just, you know, do better when they're not with, they don't have, what I'm trying to say, there are introverts who don't have to be the social butterfly. I'm not trying to say otherwise. But right, I mean, we are designed to be with other people. You know, God puts the lonely in families and, and we are called as a body of Christ, not just a bunch of floating cells and cells in the body are interdependent. And, and Paul talks about that, the body and, you know, different parts of the body needing all the other parts. And so if we don't feel or we don't find that kind of community, and even if we do, I mean, we're broken enough that we may wander away from when we have a good thing, but if we aren't finding a kind of supportive, loving community that doesn't, I'm not saying unquestioning affirmation of everything you want to do, but if, if for some reason our own community is making us feel like we're a freak, even unintentionally, then, then we are going to look for that somewhere else. And there will be counterfeit love. There will be counterfeit community that, you know, Luther said that the devil is God's ape, <laughs> meaning that the devil can't think of anything original. He takes the things God, the good things, and he, and he mimics them. And so there are communities and there are communities that will, will be very accepting and very loving. And, 
if you if your sense is that you don't fit into the kind of community you've been given, family, church, you may make a bad choice because people who are in pain, this is true of all, this is true of animals and this is true of people. When you are in pain, you'll make bad choices, right? And so we can't escape pain, but loneliness or feeling, getting the sense that you don't belong into this, you don't fit into the taxonomy quite, you know, or the, the structure that we've created, you know, or that we believe in of male and female. This, the idea of male and female and the binary and how these things should work is instinctively for most people, not complicated, but for many, it is complicated and we, and I don't understand it, but, but it is. And we can't just tell them it's just in your head, just repent and it'll go away. Cause I think that's where we need people like Bev Yankee and we need doctors to say there's more going on with transgender, for instance, than just defiance against willful, intentional defiance against the commands of God. I think there can be all sorts of reasons. Sexual trauma as a child can make you, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're a little boy who gets raped by a man, you're, you might not know what a man is, right? You might, you might be confused about that. Or if you have mental illness or depression, there's all sorts of evidence that, that, that could be at work. Endocrine things, you, you know, if your, your endocrine system or your glands are not working right, there's something haywire with the brain. We are all corrupted by sinfulness, but we don't inherit all of us. We don't all suffer in exactly the same ways. And I understand kinds of suffering that you have that are, that I might share, but I don't understand that kind of suffering in this in maybe adequately. So therefore I can't tell them, oh, we don't like complexity. And this is a more complex issue many times for people. We, if we oversimplify, then uh, we're not, then we're not taking seriously the depth of human sinful corruption. It's not simple always. It's not always a simple answer. And we like simplicity because we crave mastery. And we have to just somehow kind of humble ourselves to know that what's simple to you and obvious to you isn't always that way. And, and I think that's where the panic comes in. We, it's like, why don't you get this? Right. And, and so, so, so we just kind of maybe freak out. And that's why people think we're hateful. I, a part of it. One of the things that you were saying about community, it, it strikes me. I've been, I've been sort of, I don't know if convicted is quite the right word, but I've been hearing recently some of the studies that the LCMS Youth Department has done mm-hmm. on what are some of the things that they've found to be commonalities. It's not, it's just maybe or just what is it? It's not predictors, but associated with kids who stay in the church. Yeah. And one of the ones that particularly for me, I, I'm not married, I don't have kids, but one of the ones that I've heard and I'm like, huh is that kids are more likely to stay connected in the church when they have a relationship with an adult from their church who's not their parent. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like also, <laughs> like, so the idea of these kids who are, you know, in our church, we love them and care for them. What more can we do? One of the things that for those of us who are not parents, one of the things that we can we can do is be connected with kids who <laughs> we are not a parent of. It's it's mm-hmm. good for parents to not be the only ones saying some of these things to kids and not be the only model that they're seeing. And anyway, that that's something with the whole community discussion that you were just talking about is the idea of not even just the family relationship, but that broader community. That's one area that 
I don't know. When I was growing up, I don't recall. Like I had I had acquaintances with adults, but I wouldn't necessarily have. I don't know. I'm trying to think if I would say that I necessarily had friendships. It's not that it has to be friendships, but I don't know. It's, it's something I don't necessarily have strong memories of from my own experiences growing up as a youth. Mm-hmm but something that I've been thinking more about as there's this whole crop of youth at my church right now. And mm-hmm. <laughs> which is great. Exactly. And like, what, what, what does yeah. that mean? How can I be more involved in that? What does that look like since I don't have the experience as a parent to say, Oh, this is how that works. Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't remove me from that context. Mm-hmm. Well, you, uh, you know, you be you, but challenge yourself too. Right. Challenge yourself too to get outside your comfort zone, consistent with who you are, right? Your personality and your life station, right? But there there be ways you can volunteer and hang out and support people with kids. People a lot of times, church members who have small children who tend to make noise and are disruptive and cannot sit still, don't feel welcome, right? I think that's generally understood. So, you know, as pastors, we should not tolerate the curmudgeons who give scowls to families when their children make noise. That happens, right? People feel like at least they think they're being stared at. I absolutely know they are, right? Sometimes because there's there's the kids are so loud you can't hear the sermon. Well, let's let's find another way to address that than giving them a dirty look, right? So maybe it means things like, hey, go get to know these people. Go sit with the family. If a mom is especially, you know, if it's a single mom and she's got a bunch of rowdy kids, let's do things. Okay, hope is not a strategy, right? I mean, we can, I hope it gets better, right? No, that's okay. <laughs> okay, let's start there. I hope it gets better, but then do something to, to help out, right? And that might mean, hey, go dig out an old dusty teddy bear and sit with that single mom and help her manage a child like a human being, right? Instead of making them feel like they don't belong or can't, can't come to church until their kids are older. There's a hundred ways that we can start to do things to be, be a grandparent, you know, like a, surrogate grandparent in a way, right? Or, or an aunt, right? Or an uncle or a family friend. So you be you, right? But also maybe let's challenge ourselves to get outside our comfort zone because I, you're absolutely right, Aaron. You touched on something. Relationships, you know, for kids that are not their parents. I, I, that's so, so true, so important. And especially today, you know, not that long ago, people had larger families. Mm-hmm. And they had larger extended families, and they tended to live near those extended families. So, if you went to church and you had a bunch of cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents who are around, child management or whatever was different than when you don't. And True. so, be that grandparent, be that cousin, be that aunt who's going to just kind of hang out, you know, and help out in ways that you can and that you, you know, but that might mean being, you know, challenging yourself or all, all of us. I don't mean to. I'm not saying you, but those are some really important <laughs> practical things. And we don't do a great job of it. You know, we just don't do a great job of it. I mean, in, in you know, I, I serve two congregations and the one congregation I serve, not the one Sarah was at, but it could have happened anywhere. <laughs> I just remember one time there was this young family that was just on the margins of joining my congregation is, you know, a couple of baby t- toddler kids. And they were going through adult instruction. They were just kind of starting to come. But the baby, the children were at the point where they were making a lot of noise. And I just remember over here, I, I think it was, I think it, I was like in the narthex or something before church, shaking hands as people were coming in before the service started. And of course, the family with the little kids felt like they had to sit in the back row. And so 
the, one of the children right before the service started, one of the children just screamed out and I overheard the mom say, that's why we shouldn't come to church. And cause she was embarrassed, right? She was embarrassed. And I, and you know, so my heart went out. And so you start to te- teach people it's like, Hey, go. I don't, I don't want you to like scare them by showing up and saying, here, let me take your baby. But, <laughs> but, but we can develop systems and there, there's a lot of ways. Talk to other families that uh, talk to people in other churches that are maybe doing a better job at this. And we just have to work at it. And the first thing to work at improving is to admit we've got a problem, right? Admit, notice this problem. So yeah. And, and another statistic is that children do well in terms of maintaining activity in the church when the, when the dad goes. Right. And, you know, we have a lot of families where the mom goes and the dad maybe seldom does, if ever. We got to think on that problem a little more and not just complain about it. There's a great book. It's a few years old now, so it might be a little dated, but it's called Why Men Hate Going to Church. Let's take a look at that. You know, mm-hmm. things like that. OK. And and it's it's not an LCMS author. So some of his comments aren't going to be what, what we would say. But he, he does have some really the author has some really practical explanations about maybe why men don't go to church as much because in other religions it's not necessarily the same orthodox judaism islam or whatever has a strong male presence and there's good and bad for all these kinds of things but one there might be some reasons why a lot of christian churches men aren't showing up sociological reasons not just spiritual ones which we also know but we just have to instead of just knowing we have a problem let's study it and and start to think of ways that and, and maybe we'll fail and maybe no good will come of it. And, you know, but, but I, I think pessimism is not the answer, <laughs> whatever, whatever else there. I'm sure there are smarter people than me that can add more. Aaron, I don't know question. how you do it as a surrogate grandmother. You're way too young for that, but I can well, say and, you would be and. like one of the coolest <laughs> youth group leaders ever. And <laughs> if you were at my church, I'd be like, hey, Aaron, you should, you should help out with the youth. Cause yeah, they're coming yeah, over they on do. those nights. Those relationships mm-hmm. are so crucial. Yeah. Like that feeling like you have a home and a family and a community at church. I feel like that's a huge piece. Yeah. And Aaron, I don't know kind of what your hobbies are or whatever. And if you feel comfortable, maybe just invite, maybe there's a mom, maybe there's a family that has a bunch of little kids and they're really tired all the time. Say, so, hey, you know what? Maybe, maybe let your eight-year-old girl come over and I'll teach her how to bake a pie. Or, oh, you know, that is that. Yes. <laughs> on point. <laughs> that helps everybody. <laughs> Can That's I come true. over and you teach me how to bake a pie? Yeah. Too? I was going to say, <laughs> craft you're way better than, than I am. <laughs> we can, we can oh, be creative. Right. <laughs> Let's make clothes and make pies at Auntie Heron's house. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> We probably should wrap this up now. We're at an I hour know. There's minutes. so much this. Yeah. You've got good answers to big questions. So <laughs> it's good that well, you're here. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Is there, any, and, is there anything we haven't covered that you wanted to make sure that we talked about before we wrap up our time? There's a lot of aspects to these kind of conversations. So there's more than one conversation that can happen, not just with me, but let's find ways to kind of keep these discussions going in all sorts of different ways. I mean, from my perspective, I really enjoy talking to you guys. This was fun for me. Good. Yay. We like having pastors in the lounge. And I think one of the biggest points, I mean, there's a lot of big points that we've talked about already, but not being afraid to talk about this stuff with other people is huge because the more we talk about it, the less terrified we are when people who maybe don't agree with us bring something up because we've been able to talk about it with other people and to just to be in relationship with the people around you, I think is super critical for this issue, for any host of a number of other issues as well. So 
Are there any other, you've mentioned several books, obviously, Wonderfully Made, which we all love, Irreversible Damage, and mm. Why Men Hate Going to Church, I believe, are three. Are there other resources that you would like to recommend to our, our listeners? Yeah, I mean, so there are some books that are more popularly written, right, that might work better for like a general book club kind of discussion. There are some books like that. And then there are some books that maybe are a little more, I don't know, academic or scholarly that would also have appropriate ways to study. But one other book that I think is really helpful, and it might not, it's a little challenging, but it's really good. And it's, it's fairly recent. It's called The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory. The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory. And again, it's not maybe, it's maybe a challenging book for, for, for some readers, but I think it should be discussed more by Abigail Favalli. But if you just look up the title, it's fairly recent. She's a convert to Catholicism, but she, maybe like a re, revert, reconvert, but she spent a lot of time teaching feminist theory at state universities. So she's got the knowledge and the background to know how people have thought about gender and, you know, feminism and all, all this in a very theoretical way because she's taught it. And because of her conversion to traditional form of Christianity, she's really come around to a, a very different perspective, but she knows what she's talking about. And it's not just bias or whatever. She knows what she's talking about. And it's got a lot of practical help. I don't mean to say it's scholarly in the sense that only academics can read it. It'd take a little more work to read though. And, and she's Roman Catholic, like I said, so she has some answers that I, you know, we wouldn't wholly adopt. But I think it's a very good resource that, that should be on your radar. I can say I read that book knowing this conversation was coming up. Really? I heard it was a, a good resource. And I also, I felt like it was, it's accessible. It's, there are parts of it that are a little more challenging, a little, little more history maybe, but there's also a lot of very accessible, interesting, practical life application stuff that I, so I, I enjoyed reading it. Good. Good to hear. Awesome. Well, this has been a marathon of a conversation, but really good stuff. We may end up having to have a episode two in this series. I don't know. There's just so much more we can talk about and we like having pastors on for kitchen table talks. So we may be knocking on your, on your door again, proverbially over in California. So <laughs> yeah, I'm always happy. And I know some other people too, if you want to expand your, your stable of pastors or thinkers but but i totally love you guys and, and i love being here so thanks for having me on yeah it's been super awesome thanks for joining us and we will list all of these books and resources and things that we mentioned in the podcast in the show notes for the episodes so you don't have to go searching on your own we'll link to all of those things in the notes you can, of course, join the conversation in our Facebook group. This is a large conversation. We've had a few posts about it already, but once this podcast drops on Facebook and on our Instagram at Lutheran Ladies Lounge, uh, you can, of course, post comments on the podcast. And if you have more questions, uh, if we gather more, who knows, maybe we'll do a second episode with, on, a, on a slightly different angle of this as well. So join us in our Facebook group. And on our Instagram at Lutheran Ladies Lounge, you can also sign up for our e-newsletter by sending us an email, lutheranladies at kfuo.org. You can find all of our podcasts at kfuo.org slash Lutheran Ladies Lounge or on your favorite podcasting app or on the KFUO radio app. You're listening to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Erin. And I'm Rachel. Views 
views and opinions expressed on the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO Radio, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The Lutheran Ladies Lounge is produced by KFUO Radio and available at kfuo.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave a review for us, too. If you love the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast, consider financially supporting our producer, KFUO Radio, so we can keep doing what we do. Find out how at kfuo.org slash give. Sorry, my uh, husband came in and saw you were on the screen and started making faces at you well. because... <laughs> Oh, I noticed. Oh, good. You kept your calm very well. Perpetual would be proud. Oh, Rachel, I noticed. I saw everything, but I, I, I was trying to look at like Sarah and Aaron and at my wall. Instead, he does this a lot. It's uh, that's because he's a good guy. That's because he's a good guy. Video bomb was interesting timing, though. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Deep, pastoral encouragement to us.